Hello, and welcome to Conversations with William James College. My name is Stan Berman. I'm the Vice President for Academic Affairs, and I'm an Associate Professor in the Department of Clinical Psychology here at William James College. My guest today is Dr. Robert Brooks. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Stan. Thank you so much for having me on today. Well, we are honored to have this opportunity. So, um, I want to make a few introductory comments and then I'm eager to begin chatting. Uh, you are a leader in child psychology and in parenting with an international reputation. Your 17 books include Raising Resilient Tr Children, Raising a Self-Disciplined Child, Seven Steps to Have Your Child Worry Less, uh, and Angry Children Worried Parents. I would note that uh, often Dr. Sam Goldstein uh, is your co-author mm -hmm. on a number of these uh, uh, publications. You work in media and in training and in workshops. You're very highly sought after, highly respected. You've written extensively about children's normative developmental challenges and how to teach and parent so as to guide children in their healthy growth. You're an early proponent of a strength-based approach in child psychology. You advocated for studying and nurturing resiliency well before this was a frequently discussed or studied construct. I want to congratulate you again for being named the recipient of the William James College Humanitarian Award for your lifelong contributions to child psychology and to the community. Bob, you began your career in a medical school-affiliated psychiatric hospital and rose to significant leadership positions at McLean Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Your background lead me, leads me to the first question. In an era going looking back, uh, in which your colleagues were very focused on ameliorating psychopathology, you and your colleague Sam Goldstein reoriented your colleagues to consider resiliency and how to promote it. How was it that your thinking moved you in this direction at that time? Well, first, let me thank you for that lovely uh, introduction. That was a real strength-based introduction, Stan. Uh, there, there were several key points, but as I look back, uh, I, there was a certain dissatisfaction I, I had, and now I understand it even more. Like when parents would come in to see me about their child who was having problems, I could spend the first two, three sessions with them just discussing the problems. And little did I know, I was really creating somewhat of a negative atmosphere and negative emotions, which were not very conducive to being of, of help as much. Also, as you mentioned, the McLean Hospital, um, I worked there, that was where most of my career was at, it's a psychiatric uh, hospital, that uh, my first job there was actually as principal of the school in the locked door unit of the uh, child and adolescent program. And there also, I felt we focused so much on, here's the problem, how do we solve it? And there was a point probably in the late 70s when I just felt that I was missing too, too much. And I started then thinking about what if, when I met with parents after a few minutes, I started to ask them about their child's strengths, even though they were there, in terms of my helping them with their child's problems. And uh, in 1981, I can't believe how many years ago that was, I actually coined the uh, metaphor or phrase, islands of competence. I started saying we all have strengths. And what I found was truly incredible, that if I brought the issue of strengths up right away, 
One, I felt people were more willing even to talk about some of the difficulty, but when you brought up strengths, it shifted the focus to realizing that we're not just there to fix someone, we're really there to look at what are their beauty, what are their strengths, and how do we use these strengths to help them to overcome problems. And it wasn't just with my child patients, I know we're mainly speaking about kids, but I found the same when I started asking parents about what they saw as their strengths as parents because many of the parents came in and felt you know, so defeated like they had not done a very good job as parents. And even my adult patients who came in for difficulties not related to the parenting, I just found a strengths-based model really began to help. And I must tell you, on a very personal level, I found myself uh, I, I think a much more effective therapist and I, I found myself looking much more forward to doing therapy when I could shift to a strength-based model and most of it at first was with a clinical uh, you know population but then it really shifted to a population where I gave a lot of talks for parents and what can we do from the time our child is born to help them to be less stressed and more resilient. You know, I think another benefit of, of the approach that you built, uh, and I say this as a fellow child psychologist, mm -hmm. is in the parents reporting uh, a description of their child and a history of their child, we end up inducing shame in the parent uh, in that yes. they feel if I were more competent or wiser or more patient, I wouldn't be sitting with you. And this approach joins with them in what delights you about your child, what are you proud of, and that is quite a shift for the parent. Yes, it's a, it's a wonderful point, and also, you know, with some of the recent research related to positive emotions by psychologists like Sean Aker or Barbara Fredrickson or Richard Davidson, what they say basically is if you can create positive emotions, it actually leads to more effective problem solving, being more optimistic. So I didn't realize it then, but by ha creating these, I'll say, positive emotions, what you said, by looking at what you could do effectively as a parent with the strengths of your child, little did I realize it was also freeing up parents, and when I worked with teachers, to actually be less defensive, less shameful, but and better able to start looking at different options of how to handle their kids. So I didn't know the research, well the research wasn't there at the time and some of the brain research, but I, I, I noticed it intuitively or it was palpable that people were being more creative. People were looking at different solutions to problems. And now I, you know, there's all this brain research which says yes, parts of the brain are being activated when positive emotions are there that let us be better problem, problem solvers. Absolutely, and, and it's interesting that in the field of organizational psychology uh, in the last decade or more, there's this focus on appreciative inquiry. Yes. What do we as an organization have to be proud of? What have we built together? I, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I love appreciative inquiry. When I discussed it, I, I said, you know, here's how organizations can look more effectively at what are the strengths of an organization? You know, what have been those moments that have you're very proud of in an organization. Just like I asked parents, what have been one or two of the best moments you had, had as a parent? And it's not just to force people to answer, it's get, get them to think about things and not just go down a path of you know this negativity. Absolutely. You know, um, I uh, 
I was exposed to Islands of Competence first, many years ago, not by reading you, but by walking into a public school where I was consulting, and prominently in the front hallway was a big poster that the guidance counselor had done with students about Islands of Competence. And having seen that, in, in my travels around other schools as a consultant, I would see these bulletin boards. So it's interesting, a theorist can have many ideas that they feel excited about, and it's hard to predict what's the idea that's gonna grab people's attention. So what do you think it is about Islands of Competence that has become, in some ways, a Brooks trademark? <laughs> it's interesting, because my PowerPoints I have from different places, actually a videotape someone did in New Jersey, where they dressed up like with lays, like, oh, well, Hawaii right. Island. People have sometimes said, how did you even come up with that? So I just want to share that, and then yes, I'll please. tell you about the trademark. There was a day, I'm sure you've had some days like this, where I came home and I felt all of my patients, both child and adult, were doing not very, not being very effective, which meant I felt I wasn't being effective. And I, I still remember this so vividly. I, I said, all of my patients seem to be drowning in an ocean of inadequacy. And I, I was like, you know, all of a sudden I said, if there's an ocean of inadequacy, there must be islands of competence. So my next talk I gave, I mentioned that. And people seemed riveted. I just thought it was nice, another, another way of saying areas of strength. A woman came up to me and said, I'll give you full credit, but can I use that? You know, and I said, you know, certainly. And to this day, oh, and I should mention, so then I started calling some of my talks the search for islands of competence. I almost felt I was a mystery writer or something. And it, it's very interesting how some phrases, if you would have said to me the first time I used it that I'd be going to different schools or clinics where they would have islands of competence, I'd say, really? But I guess there are some phrases that just really stick, that, uh, that capture something, uh, that go, went far beyond what I ever thought. But I know I'll go to places where I've spoken before or consulted before. They said, we're always looking for people's islands of competence. Even in the business world, when you mentioned organizations, I had uh, a CEO said, you know, I heard you speak, and we're always looking now for employees' islands of competence. So it's, it's very intriguing. I would have never predicted it. How it came about was after a, a very difficult day. Right. Uh, but it just seemed to take hold, and I made a point of saying, looking for your islands of competence doesn't mean you ignore the problem areas, but what I found is, if you could start focusing on what your strengths are, it had, I, what I described, it had a ripple effect where you were then willing to take on new challenges, because so many of the people I was seeing in therapy really seemed to uh, be starved for success, and yet they had had successes. And so when they could even just think about a few, it, it was like, gave them the, uh, it was a catalyst for them trying new things. Wonderful, wonderful. So switching gears, mm -hmm. another concept that's very closely identified with you and your name is the resilient child. Mm -hmm. And when you introduced that idea, resiliency wasn't a, uh, a nom de jour. And now it much more is, and people use it in their day-to-day -day discussions. But say more about how you think about the resilient child. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a 
it's such an intriguing question uh, uh, for me because you could look at, I, I even edited uh, a book, Handbook of Resilience in Children, where we asked some of the world's experts and what I, about resilience, and I learned many have different, you know, concepts about it. But for me, how it came about is I started to say, I want people to be, you know, in a simple way, I hope not overly simplistic, how, how do you bounce back from adversity? Uh, and I said being resilient doesn't mean you're not going to face adversity, but you've, you have certain ways of looking at the world and, and coping that will help you. So what happened was, both as I think a parent, uh, as a supervisor, as a therapist, I started asking this question, how does a resilient child or adult see the world differently from one who is not? What outlook do they have and what skills do, do they have? So this was a very exciting part of my career. It goes back a number of years. I started to look at all the research I could find, plus my own research and my clinical experience, and I wrote, started writing down what would I want to see in any child. From the moment they're born, a kid I see in therapy or an adult, and I called it a resilient mindset, which was associated then with certain behaviors. But one of the things w was that I, I started then thinking about what are some of the most obviously important things. And it wasn't just achievement. I mean, some people, whether you get good grades or whatever, actually based on some of my research, one of the first things I put down in terms of resilience is people will be more resilient if they feel they're making a positive difference in the life of other people. So I would say to parents or because I was seeing in therapy, I would try to work out what is one thing this child does that makes him or her feel that they are making a positive difference. And especially in schools, I felt like some of these kids who were doing very poorly in schools, when you asked them to read to a younger child or do something, they were more resilient. So I, I started to list these things. So for resilience for me meant it was tied to compassion, it was tied to self-discipline, how we help kids deal with mistakes, how we help them to deal with success. And I called it a mindset because resilient kids, I felt, see mistakes as experiences from which to learn rather than feel defeated. They, they, they take realistic credit for their success. So I started to talk to parents, how do you help kids when they're successful to be reali take realistic credit or teachers in that regard. And so I, I listed a number of things, but I, right by the top, I really talked a great deal about compassion and self-discipline and characteristics like that. For me, it's difficult to, to be resilient if one is not also caring and giving and, and compassionate. I, I started more and more feeling they were tied to a sense of purpose and meaning. And little did I know when I was to start writing about resilience across the lifespan, this is across the lifespan that research shows elderly people who are actively involved in helping others, even if you control for a number of factors, are more resilient and actually lead longer lives. So it's this process of sitting down and saying, how does a resilient person see the world differently? What is their mindset? And how does it get translated into actual behaviors? And those behaviors then, it's a dynamic loop, reinforce certain aspects of our mindset. And it's a, it's a lovely model because Parents are concerned about raising kids that uh, get so much praise and positive reinforcement that they're puffed up, they don't have a realistic sense of themselves, they're not good sharers, and so with your emphasis on the giving back, mm. uh, which builds in, uh, I think, uh, humility 
and a different kind of self-reflection, right. that's a really important counterbalance. Uh, oh, I think it's vital. As a matter of fact, before I wrote about resilience, if you was, I, I talked about self-esteem. Unfortunately, self-esteem got to have a very negative connotation in some quarters. Uh, my notion was similar to you know resilience, but uh, I sort of put that concept aside because I would write about it and people say well, that's where you let kids get away with murder, and that's I mean I would hear some of these comments. So with resilience, I could make it even clearer that it, there's there are things like self-discipline, holding kids accountable, and being responsible, uh, and. Uh, you know, it became it became a very exciting time as one looks at one's career and reflects on it because I felt I was getting a better handle on some of the things I was doing, and and trying to be more specific, not just theoretical. But you know, I I, I, I um, and your question triggered. I, I probably drove some of my supervisors crazy, but hopefully in a nice way because even as a trainee, I would hear some theory and then I stand. I would always then say. But what do I actually say and do? I mean, I was always interested. I may not agree with everyone, but what do I actually say and do when I'm do doing therapy or, you know, it be in anything? And that also helped me. How do you take theoretical concepts and then apply them in a whole host of different situations, which was a challenge, but it was a very good challenge. Mm -hmm. I mean. So let's change uh, now to, to looking a bit at parenting. And mm -hmm. you've had a particular focus as well on parenting and effective parenting. I, I, I'm going to um, sort of have a question coming in from a side street here. Okay. I, I think about the parents, uh, I'll give an example. Uh, a, a mom had, was a very successful adolescent and collegiate athlete and being fit and keeping up with let's say her running is a vital part of her health plan but also of her self-identity. And when she has a, a daughter, she's thrilled with the idea that my daughter will follow my footsteps and that she'll be an outstanding athlete. And this is the daughter that wants to play piano and read uh, volume after volume uh, on her bed. <laughs> and, and so the parent is now faced with encountering and coming to fully accept the child who isn't her vision of who I thought my daughter would be. What are your thoughts about uh, that? Well, of course, people can't see I'm smiling as you say that because before I became a father, so this was many years ago, I read something that said we should learn to accept our children for who they are, not what we want them to be. I wasn't a father yet. And I said, well, what's the big deal? Of course, they're your children. You accept them. Then you become a parent, and it's not as e easy. Um, and what your question brings up, I would say, is I look at all the families I've worked with, you capture one of the greatest difficulties. I say to parents, we all have dreams of who our kids are going to be probably even before they're born. And not every kid is going to live up to that. Every kid comes into this world with a different temperament. And I think as parents, we really have to search for and look at uh, the f that we do have to learn to accept our children for who they are and not what we want them to be. And I, that doesn't mean if they're doing something very harmful, you don't step, you don't step in. Uh, I found that with my older son, Rich, who's very successful. He did no work in school in the 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th grades. Here I am, the expert on motivation, lecturing all over the country on how to motivate students. And all I focused on, and I'm really glad I had a son like Rich, uh, 
and fortunately he's doing very well today, all I focused on were his grades. Here was a kid who was volunteering at a homeless shelter. He was developing computer programs for kids with learning disabilities while he got a warning slip in computer programming in school. And so what your question brings up is, I think we, as parents, we really have to do a lot of soul searching. You know, there's a wonderful concept uh, in child development called goodness of fit. And, not, and what it basically is, is what's the fit between a child's temperament and interests and the parents? And what I say to parents is, we're going to have to accommodate much more to our child's temperament than they're going to accommodate to ours. Will there be some pain? Yes. If, you, if you're a real athlete and your kid doesn't want to play sports, you know, or if you're a musician, your kid doesn't want to take up a musical instrument. But that is where I'll often say to parents, if I sat down with you, let's say it's at a workshop, and ask you to list your kid's strengths and passions and interests, what are they? And I'll, I'll make, try to make this very quick. Uh, it, uh, there was a, uh, I saw a father once who was very uh, athletic. His kid wasn't interested in sports at all. He had an eight-year-old son. And I said to the father, and the mother was there, but the main issue was with his father. Uh, I said to the father, what does your son like to do? And he says, oh, he loves to draw and, uh, you know, paint. He's only eight. Uh, he was a very good artist, actually. And, uh, and then the father says to me, but he said, this is the problem. I don't like to draw or paint. And then we got into a discussion, and the father teared up and said, I almost feel I'm losing my son. And it's very powerful. And he's not interested in playing sports. And I said, well, I, you have to think about how do you join his interests. And what happened was the father signed himself and his son, with his son's permission, up to take an art course at one of the museums in Boston. And I'll, I'll never forget this. The father must have called me the moment the art course was finished, and he said, he was really choked up in a very positive way. He said, it was so delightful to see the joy on my son's face. And even though I don't like to draw it, just to see his joy was so much to me. And then the father <laughs> laughed and said, he even told me how I was not holding my pen correctly or something. But that was a lovely example, nothing extreme, of a father saying, I have a kid who's not interested in sports, but if I don't want to, as he said, lose him, I've got to think of how do I join him. And it's not, it, it's not easy, you know, yes. if you're academically oriented and your kid isn't, or you're a social butterfly and your kid is more shy, but we, ha we do have to learn to accept our kids for who they are. And as I often say to parents, if kids look in your eyes and all they see is how disappointed you are in them, it's going to be difficult for them to become resilient because resilience is really housed or rooted in the relationship we have with significant adults in our lives. Yes, yes. So on this same theme, you've written and thought a great deal about effective parent-child communication. And I think when we're having a wonderful, silly time with our three-year-old, we project out and think at, at nine and at 14 and at 17, it'll continue to be easy. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so what, what are your thoughts about taking the pouting, I'm locked in my room, leave me alone 10-year-old, or having the 14-year-old that got in minor trouble at middle school? What, what are some of your uh, guidelines for parents? 
we, um, with my own son, Rich, I think what really helped after a while, when I stopped asking him if he did his homework every night, was that we had had a pretty good relationship up to the point there was a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, homework. You know, I used to say to parents, why well, I love your question, but I used to say take a helicopter view. Unfortunately, then all of a sudden the helicopter view became equated with being a hovering parent. But what I meant by a helicopter view before the notion really came to have a negative connotation was uh, look at where your child's been, where they're at now, and where you hope they go. And there are some issues right now that may seem very big, like your kid is pouting, that as you take a broader view, are really not that vital. And what I would say to parents is, look at their overall life. I get more concerned if you tell me your, your kid is, stays in their room all day, has no friends, and on and on. But if you tell me your kid is not speaking to you as much, but they have all these friends and they're doing very, relatively well, that's the more important, you know, more important thing. So, and I, I said, you know, there are different points in our life. I saw it with my own parents, or I was very fortunate to have such wonderful parents. And I see it with my own kids that relationships change, and uh, and uh, and hopefully we can put up with some of the turmoil. Like, so my son did no work in school for four years, but. I had to recall that he, there were many wonderful things he did, which I was not focusing as much on. And I always say to parents, there will be some things that, you know, rightfully we should be worried about. And sometimes kids do need or parents need professional help, but there are a lot of these other things that we just have to recognize. It's part of development. And I always felt this, and I feel it strongly, while adolescents in one sense may push us away, they also want to know we're there in a very caring way. Uh, and it's a tightrope because sometimes they may feel we're hovering over them or whatever, but uh, we st they still need us and they still, I think, want to feel that we are there, uh, you know, for them. Uh, so taking a helicopter view and not being a hovering parent to me became very important. And many parents would say that it was, that they realized that criticizing their child for something or getting on them something, whether that kid made their bed in the morning may not be any predictor of success in life uh, later on. That's a really important uh, thing to emphasize because so often a parent will feel this is the third time in the month of December that she slammed her door <laughs> and won't let me in and the world is ending and the parent sincerely feels uh, baffled and ineffective. So that's very helpful. Yeah, I, I've sometimes prepared parents. <laughs> I'm laughing for that because I had to prepare myself. And like parents would say, you should see their room and you know how messy it is. And after a while, Stan, I would just say, my philosophy was as long as I, they could get out in case of an emergency, it may not be worthwhile to be after them so much. You know, you look back and there are some things which at the time seemed very big and really a very minor and the main thing is not to uh, rupture the relationship you have with your kid. So we, we just have a few more minutes unfortunately because I'm having a very good time having so this conversation. So much. Pleasure Thank having you. the hearing the questions you're asking. Thank you. So you know you've you've uh, you've written about uh, promoting pro-social behavior and effective social skills You've written about the angry child. You've written about the anxious child. 
I think as we're getting ready to close, uh, when you ask educators what's the most challenging behavioral issue they face, it's the anxious student and the yes. anxious child. So I think maybe it would be uh, have a nice symmetry to finish up with talking about how do we work with that anxious third grader and that anxious eighth grader. Uh, we can talk from a school perspective or a family or both. Yeah, it, you're so right. I, I think as I go around the country, the big concern I hear from teachers, who especially if they've been teaching at least 10 years, is kids are just much more anxious uh, today. You know, one could look at it from different vantage points is, I think as parents, first of all, it gets to one of the questions, we have to look at what our expectations are from a very early age on kids. That doesn't mean we could be relaxed parents and kids are still going to be uh, anxious. I, one of my website articles I wrote about, you know, a teacher talking about a kid being very anxious about getting into college and the kid was like in the third grade and you say, oh my heavens, third graders should not be worried about college uh, like this. What, what I've tried to do, and I recently had a father uh, who heard me five years ago when his son wasn't doing very well in school and it kid seemed from everything the father said, he was at a workshop I was giving, I said, have fun with them. First of all, you know, school isn't everything. Anyway, now the kid's an honor student. The father said, I just decided to have fun. Now, it's not always going to be uh, that easy. I really feel as much as possible we should look at, kids will be anxious, but we should really have, try to engage them and what are, some, what are some of the strengths, what are some of their passions. I've, I've worked with anxious kids who become less anxious actually based on what I mentioned before when they find some joy in helping others. Because sometimes people will say you're going to give them more responsibilities, I said no, but you have to have a more balanced kind of schedule. The problem is, it's a whole societal issue. I mean, that's that's the issue. If it was just the parents or a particular school, but it wouldn't be maybe as difficult. But I've also worked with uh, teachers who have told me, and I have some wonderful you know vignettes about that, who have told me that you know having a kid help out, displaying a kid's strengths uh, in in some way, whether it's a poster or whatever. So you have a more relaxed atmosphere in school is very helpful. And, and some of the research now translating positive emotions and how do you generate it in a classroom has led to less anxiety. Kids feel freer. They feel less judged there. But, you know, it's a major problem when a third grader, you know, uh, is worried about what college he's, or she's going to get into. And parents may not have even mentioned anything. You say, the pressure we put on kids, and there's so many different paths. That that's the other thing I try to say is how a kid is now. You know, maybe very different how they are later on, or what their interests are going to uh, are going to be. Uh, so when I said to that father, "Have fun with your son," his son at that point was about 12, and his father was worried about school, and he came to hear me again. I spoke at the same school uh, just a couple months ago, and he said, "I had to come to hear you just to tell you." The amazing advice you gave. So I, I didn't even remember. He said, "Have fun." My first thought was, "Have fun." He said, "I realized all I was focusing on were his grades and whatever." And we just started to do fun things. I took him to sporting events, and we started to do fun things. And lo and behold, my son was less anxious, and he's doing better in school. And again, it's not always going to be that easy. But the father's joy in his face. He said, "I, I just felt I really connected with my son in a way I hadn't before." 
So I, a final comment mm -hmm. and, and a final question. Okay. My comment is to our listeners that uh, between your website, which I'm going to ask you to announce in a moment, okay, and between your extensive writing, if you've said things which you certainly have that get that have piqued curiosity, there's a lot of uh, opportunities to read you and to uh, participate in your website and to learn much more. So your website is? Well, it's simply my name, drdrrobertbrooks.com. I write a monthly article, which I've been doing now for, God, it's about 18, 19 years, about 200 articles. It's like a lengthier newsletter. Everything we discussed today, there are briefer articles, and it's totally free to subscribe. And all of the former ones that are, are, list, are posted, so if people are interested in a particular topic, and if they want a much more in-depth view, I'm not here to sell books, but you know, on my website are a, a list of some of my books where it goes into greater depth uh, on some of these topics. Okay. So final question. As you're preparing the workshops and trainings you have coming up, and I know you're always reading, what's a, a, a current theory, a current writer, a current idea that right now has you jazzed? Yeah. I think it's the whole field of this issue which ties to positive <laughs> psychology is positive emotions. People like Sean Aker who wrote The Happiness Advantage, Barbara Fredrickson who wrote Positivity, <clears throat> and uh, Richard Davidson, a neuroscientist who's looking at what happens in the brain when there are uh, positive emotions. Again, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'm just very fascinated by you know, what, uh, one of the behaviors that occur when we create positive emotions, whether it's in therapy or in a classroom. Uh, I'm just fascinated by what is it. We now know there are things going on in the brain because of the, the whole field of neuroscience and being able to measure these things that is it, really very exciting. I find I'm more and more reading uh, some of this research and, you know, these authors also give very, very specific uh, examples of how you then apply some of this, uh, this research. And what I've been trying to do, whether I'm speaking at a bit to a business group or a school or parents, is really, an, or conducting therapy is, okay, how do I apply this in these different settings or how do the people apply? So I would say a lot of my readings nowadays would be in the field of People are writing a lot about positive emotions and happiness, but happiness could sound so, I don't know what, but really looking closely at what happens when we can create some of these positive emotions and what happens when there are negative emotions and how they constrict our problem solving and how they lead to greater anxiety. Yes. So I, I find myself gravitating more towards uh, those kind of books. also makes me happier. <laughs> <laughs> And on that note, Dr. Robert Brooks, many thanks. Thank you for, really, your questions were wonderful, and it's a pleasure to speak to a colleague <laughs> like this. Thank, Thank you. you.